Hello, my name is Zach Yenser. I'm on the chopping block at visceralchange.org. Listen to what we do. I don't have anything to say. No, wait, wait. I'm nervous. Yeah. It's your easy listening station. Right now. <laughs> You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. The on the Visceral Change Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to this very special episode of the chopping block continuing to bring you discussions and dialogue around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and justice, accessibility, all those good terms, and some of the most critical ways possible. Uh, and so today, continuing with season four, we have a good pal, a good buddy here in Tucson, Mr. Zach Yenser. Zach, how you doing today? I'm good, Sherrard. Good to be with you. Glad to have you here, man. Um, so a couple things about Zach, and whatever I miss out, please, please fill in. Uh, Zach is the executive director of Tucson Young Professionals. He's also the host, uh, or maybe this has shifted, but the host of The Tipping Point on 1030, uh, The Voice. And he is also, and this is what we're most interested in today, at least, he is also a mayoral candidate for this year's 2023 election here in Tucson, Arizona, running as an independent. Did I miss anything there, Zach? You did. Well, there's one thing that is also relevant. I, I just finished four years as a neighborhood association president. And uh, so that wrapped in September. Nice. And, and I wrapped up almost five years as host of Tipping Point, as you mentioned. Oh, wrapped up. Okay. Yeah. Back in July. And I had to transition out of both those things to be able to run for office. Makes but sense. Both yeah. of those were an education, let me tell you. Uh, For sure. To this point, so. I can imagine. And you're a very accomplished person. We'll talk more about that as we as we engage the interview. But um, I always like to try to start from the beginning as best as possible. So I give my listeners a, a decent grasp of who is actually in front of us. Um, and then we kind of get into the, the content later on. But it's important to make that connection. So let's start at the beginning. I... I read somewhere in my research that you moved to Tucson in 2002 at 11 years old. Um, where did you move from? And sort of talk about that journey and experience. Sure. I uh, was born in Pennsylvania. There's a kind of a, a suburb, uh, a f number of miles, uh, I think it's south of Philadelphia. So I grew up on the Philly side of the state. Uh, and uh, it was a, a place called Quakertown. Uh, I'm not Quaker, but that's the name. Uh, name I'm familiar of the with it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the claim to fame, if I have my facts right, is that the Liberty Bell was stowed away in Quakertown for uh, a night as we were playing keep away with it uh, from the British uh, <laughs> during, got it. during the Revolutionary War. So great place to grow up. I have some really good memories, but they're also really fuzzy because... I really spent, you know, my only my first 10, 11 years there and moved to Tucson. You're right. When I was 11, that's 2002. And my dad's mom had moved out to Arizona um, and she was starting to get older and needed some caretaking and just support. And so we moved out here to Tucson to, to take care of her. Nice. Um, did you find that? Well, you were 11, so to the best of your knowledge, did you did you find that transition to be challenging as, as a young man, or um, do you have much recollection of that at all? Uh, I was excited to move out to Tucson, and the transition was really healthy for me, and my 
kind of adolescence and becoming a young man in Tucson was really important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, was able to do everything from, you know, an, uh, a streams program at the University of Arizona. Uh, I started the violin really young and we got to uh, kind of do a program at the university. Um, nice. My education was really flexible when I was young. So I actually finished my, I believe it was my sophomore year uh, of, of high school, uh, a little, about a semester early. And so I was able to go and do an internship at the Pima County Attorney's Office wow. uh, as a 16-year-old. As a they had just stood up their domestic violence uh, division. And uh, for me just to be kind of around that ecosystem uh, of, of the attorney's office and what its role was, you know, I was, I was, I was pushing paper. I'm not going to tell you sure. I did anything significant. <laughs> you're young. I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> you absorb things when you're there. That That's was right. on the heels of, um, you know, Adelita Grijalva uh, <laughs> was really a key part for really a couple of decades in a program called yes. Pima Teen Court. Uh, and it was a basically a diversion program where teens uh, litigate misdemeanor cases to help young people divert through um, a non-disciplinary means um, to address violence and um, and misdemeanor drug use and violence at home, there would be different trainings and programs. And so I was an, I was an attorney uh, at the age of 14, 15, 16. Wow. I think I did, I did 160 cases as a teen attorney where we would Jeez. meet these people and these families. We would prosecute or defend the case. I mean, it was in a, in a courtroom with a judge and, wow. and we would, you know, either as a defending attorney, try to, you know, work the diversion program down or as, as a prosecuting attorney, try to say, Hey, we need, we need more resources here. Uh, none of now, it was, was, it, was it mock or was it legitimate? It was legitimate. Wow. It was, it was legitimate. And again, we weren't, you know, sentencing any jail time or juvenile sure. detention or anything, but there would be, you know, uh, we had an aggravated assault case. We would have some basic community service that we would mandate. We would have some courses and training on how to manage uh, emotion and anger and things like that, you know, oh. and the around whether or not those young people um, committed the offenses again or kind of kept on a more straight and narrow path was really good. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'll have to say Tucson was really good for me, really formative. It was a great transition. It was good for developing the human that I, that I'm you know, still becoming, um, right. but it was good for us. I, I, I share a, at a much later age, but I share moving from a big sort of metropolis type city or just around that particular space, you're Philly, me, Boston, to somewhere like Tucson. And although I got to have that experience a little bit older, uh, I do know what it's like to move, you know, under the age of 12, under the age of 15. And uh, although I was in the same city, you, you know, those things stick with you, especially where your formative years kind of come in in spurts, you know, whether it's at the elementary age or the middle school age or the high school age, I mean, we're all identifying differently as we go through that journey of life. And so that's really interesting to see how that impacted you, especially the credit that goes to Tucson and then your experience as essentially an attorney and a prosecutor, which is, which is really cool. Um, I had a chance to work with the district attorney in Boston, but I was in college at that time. Um, and so the, to, to have that experience early on, uh, it must be really, really cool. And one thing I get from that though, is you were always in a way, 
I don't know if it's a people person or around people, but this, let's, let me ask this question. If I were to ask somebody who knew you from that particular point in time, would they be surprised that Zach Yenser is running for mayor? No. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. And, and, and in a way I'm kind of surprised, uh, <laughs> you know, um, I, I was, I was certainly not 16 and thinking I'm going to run for mayor someday. Yeah. Um, but I can see the path leading here. And I think somebody who would know me back then would probably see, I love to communicate story. I love to figure out what story of our families and our communities and how do we, um, how do we help to shape that and represent that? And how do we make a better community? That's always, that's, right. been, that's always been in my DNA. Um, it's the sort of a think globally, act locally approach. Yes. But in some ways you even, you even acted globally. As I understand, yes. you, you spent some time in Kosovo, right? Uh, and take us through this. Uh, I have here faculty of Islamic studies uh, and project developer at the Kosovo Institute or Kosovo Institute Policy Research and Development. I mean, so on and so forth. I don't even want to get tongue tied. Just talk to us about that experience and 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 <laughs> that journey. Right. Yeah, that was wild. Um, yeah. You know, I really wanted to make use of my college experience. So I actually spent the first two summers after my freshman and sophomore year doing language study with what was called the Critical Languages Institute. And these are languages that are spoken by very small percentages uh, of peoples around the world. And of course, uh, Albanian, which is what I ended up studying, is only spoken by Albanians and Kosovars. Mm. And in the early, well, more the late 90s was the, uh, was the, uh, uh, was the war between the, the, the Serbians and the Kosovars. It was in effect an ethnic cleansing. And uh, it was really interesting. Uh, if I get my countries right, you know, President Bill Clinton, I think, was pretty tormented over what was happening in Rwanda. Uh, mm. his administration. And so um, what was happening in Kosovo, where there was a, really an ethnic cleansing in kind of that Yugoslavian context in the late 90s, was right. really kind of his do over opportunity to step in and lead the world and saying, this is not okay. Sure. And sure. when I went over to Kosovo, this was 2011. Okay. It was still one of the newest independent countries in the entire world, one of the youngest in terms of population countries in Europe under the age of 35. And uh, I got to be there during a time when they were really um, trying to uh, set up and build their own uh, kind of democratic institutions as a new country. Yeah. And, you know, it was... Um, really um, great to work on a project through the State Department that was partnered with Arizona State University, uh, where I went to college, got to work with a nonprofit over in Kosovo on building democratic learning in the school. So working with elementary uh, and young students on here's how you engage in your new democracy mm. um, and really trying to build that institution from really the ground up. Uh, with young people. And, and so not only was it great to learn Albanian for really three years, um, I'd still say it's my second best language after I was gonna say, do you still have it? Yeah. Uh, I'd probably need to go spend a few weeks somewhere with 
people <laughs> okay. are speaking it, to, but it, but but it's like for me getting on a bicycle, you know, it, sure, it's sure, sure, sure. pretty quickly. And so it was great to uh, be there learning the language, um, to be able to work on that State Department project. But what was really powerful was we were just really a decade and change removed from an ethnic cleansing, from a genocide. Right. And my small role there was to help the university and the nonprofit and then Serbian enclaves and the Kosovar community come together for the benefit of young people to learn in a multicultural way, here's how we build a democracy. And it, look, we're in Kosovo, but there are these Serbian enclaves, a decade and change removed, we're gonna have to figure out how our young people certainly turn the page, come together and, and build a country that works for everybody. And wow. that experience as a, I mean, for crying out loud, a young 20 something yeah, you know, was powerful. So I think that's always been in my DNA is bringing together different worldviews and different people around literal tables and saying, what do we share and what is common for us? And what is the future we all want together look like? And let's figure that out. Um, that's, that's huge. That's huge. Uh, and I, you know, I, I was actually going to ask you a similar question, which was, you know, essentially, has this always been in your D DNA? Has has was politics or the service of people always been sort of the plan for you in some form of fashion? Because you you finish ASU, Arizona State University, for folks who are not here in Arizona, uh, you finish ASU with a with a political science degree. Um, on top of some of these other things, was was that a dis some people get degrees to solidify? on paper, sort of the work they've already been doing. Was that part of that decision? You had already by this point done the, the teen uh, attorney piece. Um, I'm assuming you went to Kosovo and then came back and finished up. Um, so was the political science decision a way to kind of stamp that or, uh, or, or why that particular degree versus something else? For sure. Yeah, I think public service has always been in the DNA. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a practicing Christian, but my dad, um, you know, uh, on my dad's side, there's Jewish heritage from hundreds of years ago back sure. in Europe. And so this principle called tikkun olam or repairing the world um, has always been something that my dad has instilled in our family that, you know, in whatever small or big way we have, our role is to be a part of repairing our piece of the world. Uh, reconciliation, repair, renewal, and renaissance needs to be a part of our work um, as a family. So yes to that, yes to that question. You know, I wanted to go to law school, you know, probably stemming in part from my teen attorney experience. And I was, you know, working at the Pima County Attorney's Office as an intern. Sure. As a young person, it was a it was an internship. And I wanted to go to law school. And certainly as I studied and worked abroad, that led into a desire for maybe international law. And so, you know, I got a political science degree, planning to have that be a springboard into international law. Um, after my junior year of college, I spent my junior year in Kosovo, and um, I was supposed to go back to Kosovo for my senior year to actually work on the development of an American university uh, project to build a Balkan Research Institute. Mm -hmm. uh, bring all the Balkan wow. countries together for research and development. And so I came back to Tucson 2012 just for the summer. 
and I thought I was going to go back. And in my mind, I would still be there today. I fell in right. love with the people. I fell in love with the work. Couldn't believe right. I had the opportunity to go back. And that, you know, contract agreement, whatever you want to say, fell through. And I found myself in 2012 back home in the room that I grew up in and went to high school in at my parents' house. So I went from this major adult dream, I can't believe I have it, to I'm living with my parents again. Right. That's where the Tucson story starts. It's it's interesting how that happens, man. And I, you know, it's funny because when I reflect on my life, it was, I wouldn't say the opposite, but I was in the parents' house through like 25 before I was able to make a different kind of decision about my own life and circumstances were different. And the environment for me was probably a little bit different than the environment was for yours, for you. Uh, but the, uh, you know, how we wind up where we are today is really, for me, it's always an important part of the, of the story, which is why I always bring it here because folks who know Zach Yenser at present know Zach Yenser at present. They may not know, Right, the 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 work that went into to becoming the man, the dash, as as my favorite rapper Nas would say, that the 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 stuff that happens in between, right, the ups and downs, the 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 hard work that goes into that. So, um, one cool thing about the running for mayor is that I'd like to believe that you are a little bit more accessible to the people than uh, maybe some other positions that hold a so, sort of similar caliber of title, uh, not so much city council or alderman, but more like, I'm thinking like a governor or a senator or uh, folks of that nature. Um, and there was there's, there was a discussion I heard a while back, which I, I appreciated the concept. I just want to take hear your take on this. It's sort of a little bit of an aside, where it was uh, certain communities, in particular communities of, of color and marginalized communities, for example, might believe that, that uh, Putting sort of putting stock into the the gubernatorial race or a federal election at the very highest level is reaps less benefits because of the distance between the people in that particular position, and where running for mayor um, is a better decision or a better place to so position to place your stock because of the accessibility. My question to you is just this question, and because we're going to go into this more later on. My question to you is, do you see the, the the position of a mayor in a similar light where it is accessible to the people? And how important is that to you as you think about what your role might look like if given the opportunity uh, through the people to be elected? Mm -hmm. I think the job of mayor is the best job in the world uh, because of the ability to be as close to the ground as you are in that position, you know, where your day-to-day -day is spent in the rooms, is spent around the tables, is spent with really diverse communities, but on really big, important issues. And I think about the tug and pull that we are seeing at the national level. Mm -hmm. And I am talking to, you know, really firm Democrats and firm Republicans every single day who will say to me, I've been a firm D or a firm R all my life, and I've sure. never felt this detached and this discouraged and this right. less of a D or this less of an R than I've ever been because I watch what happens at the national level and not much is happening. 
and it's disconnected from my reality and I don't have contact with those people. But a mayor, you see them ideally walking down the street, see them in your restaurants, be able to go over to them and and talk about the important issues of of housing, uh, of economic opportunity, of quality of life issues that make the most impact in our day-to-day life. So that combination of accessibility, but also tangibility, that there's a tangibleness to this work. And I think as a mayor, you get to see those results first, quickest, and most. And I think the restoration of the the American soul, the American spirit, whatever you want to say, I think is going to come from our cities and towns because it's in those places where we can do the work together. We can learn to trust each other again. We can be in the same rooms again and go, we can trust each other. We can get the work done. And I think that is so refreshing Yeah. in this era. And certainly why I'm running as an independent, one of the reasons is I want to uh, be able to uh, visibly and symbolically represent that I'm going to be that convener and unifier and focuser on the local level because I believe in it that much. Sure. And it, it and I'd imagine running as independent um, in a way gives you a almost like a tertiary perspective because you just named so the firm R and the firm D and, and as Democrats and Republicans and you as an independent are not necessarily married to either one of those concepts and ideologies. Not that you are devoid of of them or don't see value in on, mm-hmm. on either side, but running as independent might, and you tell me, give you a a, a positionality of sorts that says, I have a little bit more liberty and freedom to, to make an authentic decision based on my perspective. 100%. And what I'm hearing, yeah. Yes, it's hard work uh, in the system of politics, but it's- That's right. It's freeing work. That's right. Uh, it's freeing work. And maybe we'll get into this later, but we used to say that all politics are local. Mm-hmm. One of my fears and frustrations is that that's not true anymore. Mm. All politics are now national and it's tearing us apart. And I think one of the dangers for certainly bigger city mayors in Tucson's a big city where the 33rd largest in the country is that mayors have more pressure than ever to read off the national one sheet, you know, right. to, yeah, to read right. off of the yeah. game plan of the Washington Republicans or the Washington Democrats. Right. To leave behind the pragmatic local work that doesn't fit into those boxes. Right. And as an right. independent, I want to bring that back here in Tucson. One thing about Tucson specifically, and then and is when I know folks who are you know ask about my time here again, coming from Boston, I spent some time in Raleigh, North Carolina, and Chapel Hill, and things like that. You know, uh, one thing that really stands out to me about Tucson is the the like the familial culture, like nature of this particular city, in ways that I haven't seen somewhere else. There's a lot of cultural history in other places, but Tucson just feels very local and. But that becomes threatened by the adherence to like a, the national mandate, you sort of lose a sense of identity in that. And so it sounds like you want to bring the focus back to sort of keeping Tucson, Tucson, to use the language. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Um, so let's come back. Let's come back a little bit more. Um, and one thing we do know that's important about, as we mentioned a second ago, B 
being a mayor is your ability to connect to the people. This isn't a foreign concept to you, given your work, especially with with uh, two so young professionals. <laughs> so, um, you excuse me, you became their executive director back in, I have here, 2018, 2019, that area. Um, let's talk 2019. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about TYP to the best of your ability and your knowledge, as you remember, at that time, and how it had changed and grown since the time you began to the time you had to step away. Mm -hmm. Yep, for sure. And, and TYP is a huge piece of what I've been calling uh, a tapestry of experiences that have gotten me to this point, you know, sure. whether that was, you know, my entry back into Tucson was uh, working with uh, faith-based nonprofits and churches around community service and meeting social and community needs uh, in a fine way um, that led to, you know, working and co-managing the largest coffee company in Tucson, a local company called Savaya Coffee Market. Um, yep. so, so I went from nonprofit and community experience to uh, to business and for-profit, but local experience um, led to the radio show, getting to sit down with leaders every day on both sides of the aisle and hashing out the issues. Um, the neighborhood president experience in the birthplace of Tucson, as we've mentioned, and uh, the, the the latest piece of that tapestry has been Tucson Young Professionals. And TYP began in 2007. Uh, people will say, Zach, did you found it? And I said, no, this happened no. way before <laughs> I came on the scene. But uh -huh. in 2019, I had the privilege of becoming the interim executive director. The really kind of first organizational all-in effort to add staff to what had been almost entirely a volunteer-run organization for its first 12 years. Mm -hmm. And we had about 120 members. Um, and uh, today we now have in a four-year time, almost a thousand. We're at something like at this time of recording, 958 uh, wow. members. And uh, I think what has changed the most about TYP, and you can see a glimpse of this if you go on our website and go to our partners page. Um, it's not the full picture, but it's a picture. You can see the uh, diversity of sectors and industries and organizations that have members participating in Tucson Young Professionals. It's small arts organizations. Sure. It's organizations like the Community Investment Corporation that are focused on inclusive economic development and housing affordability, uh, all the way up to Caterpillar and oh, wow. Mr. Carwash, right? Mr. Carwash, yeah. you know, uh, trade on the New York Stock Exchange is one of Tucson's largest business success stories. Yeah. So we have that range, nonprofit, for-profit, uh, public sector, I think growing as a platform where all of that is represented has been a really healthy um, uh, growth pattern for us in the sense that if you if you use the title like of a, a business networking organization, mm -hmm. there are certain industries and sectors that fit best into that. I think TYP is unique in that we have uh, almost everybody involved. Uh, the one area that we're trying to grow in and we're really focused on it is um, the trades. We would love to see uh, more folks who are in the trades in Tucson be a part of Tucson Young Professionals. And I still haven't found the right word for this. I'll just use what we have. I don't necessarily like it. Um, mm -hmm. 
Go for but it. Many, many people will say, well, a young professional means you're a white collar industry professional. Sure. And we've, we've never said that, but we want to be more proactive in saying, no, what we mean is if you live in Tucson, if you are young or 21 to 45 and you are in your profession, uh, working in your career in Tucson, you are an applicable member of our organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that has been the the big the big story jump for TYP is really becoming the largest platform in Arizona, representing in Greater Tucson professionals twenty one to forty five years of age. I love that. Um, remind me again when when TYP began. When you first took over, how many folks were there as far as members? And then you said about 958 now, but when you first started? You had 120 four years 120. ago. 120. Wow. And what what types of efforts do you think led to this 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 explosion of membership? Mm-hmm. I, I always say there's three things. Um, number one is if you are a volunteer organization and you add full-time staff in the right way, I mean, it's going to transform the organization it, to have someone whose full-time job is to really be on the ground and growing the effort. I think that's, huge. you know, because right. the, the the having high impact people in a volunteer organization is great because they're high impact people, but they're high impact people because they're high impact in their, you know, family and other work life. Sure. So ultimately sure. you're almost always kind of getting um, probably your third or fourth on the list, uh, as you should be, right? Your family and yeah. your work, whatever else should come first. So I think full time staff was really helpful. Uh, again, I was privileged to be uh, to be a part of that. Um, we scaled our conversations from just Hey Sharar, do you do you want to be a member of TYP to working with companies and organizations and nonprofits at scale and saying you have five. Uh, members of your team who are 21 to 45, you have 15, you have 300. Would you want to provide access to your young professionals to TYP so that they can have connection and professional development and then the opportunity to get involved in community work and to advocate for a better community? Um, And that is good for participating organizations because they don't have to stand up those efforts internally. They can partner with TYP. So that's number two. And then number three was we added an advocacy pillar. We're a nonpartisan, bipartisan organization, but we said, look, we're 600, 800, we're a thousand now. Uh, Somebody somewhere should hear our voice, right? And our members say, we're concerned about the cost of housing. We're concerned about are there enough mid-career jobs for us in Tucson? Uh, we're concerned about the quality of K-12 and post-secondary education in the region. Great. What? What? How can we create our voice on that and educate ourselves on those issues, but then also educate the community, both elected and non-elected leaders, about what those issues look like for us? Right. And so whether I think it's things like that or our philanthropic efforts, adding those clear missional things really, I think, helped our members say, OK, so th- this is why I'm a part of TYP in a deeper way. And I think those three things combined really helped us scale you know, our size. So um, I want to talk a little bit about that and sort of the the advocacy efforts and which ultimately is going to lead to an inclusion effort. So where this is at its core. A DEI 
podcast. I want to kind of to to push that on you a little bit and and get you to share some of your your perspective there. Um, so I listened to an interview of yours at one point in time where you said that TYP promotes the most inclusive, innovative, and prosperous Tucson that we could. Um, now, of course, given what I do, right, the word inclusion stands out always, and it, it caused me to do some investigation on the back end. Um, so when I visited the website, at least at, at that particular time, when I looked at the board, when I looked at the executive committee, when I looked at the staff, at least racially, everybody looked either white or very white passing, um, except for maybe one person. This is just ostensibly invisibly. So that can be, you take that with a grain of salt. My question really is, although there's nuance in perception, we know that perception is reality. Um, so the question becomes, how can you and how have you in your time with TYP really led for inclusivity, at least racially, when certain identities are not necessarily represented, if nothing else, on the page. Mm. Yeah, the what's really cool is that today, and when this was recorded, it was the morning after our 2022 annual member meeting. And okay. we uh, announced for 2023 um, a task force um, called Expanding Our Impact. And it's been the culmination of about a six or seven month effort to basically look around our physical rooms and say, um, who's not here who should be, or who's not as engaged who should be. Sure. And for TYP, I, I think that definition is maybe more broad than most. And, and, and what we're looking at is, is certainly you know, whatever is the kind of uh, ethnic and and uh, and racial and cultural uh, breakdown of Tucson, you know, does our membership uh, broadly reflect, you know, what that what that looks like? I think that's important. But for us, mm -hmm. it's also things like geography. Right. If we're a greater Tucson group uh, and nobody from Vale or Oro Valley is participating we want to talk to our members over the next period of months and say, why is that? Is sure. that because of where our events are located? You know, is that because of the time of day for us? That looks like um, if you are uh, a single parent, you know, does our events and how we hold them and where we hold them, does it make it uh, applicable to where you're at in life? Um, if you are 43 years of age, with two more years of membership and we're not seeing you at our events, does that mean that our programming is not fully applicable across the career stages? Mm. Uh, if we are only seeing a certain level of income represented, um, does what does that mean about what we're doing and who we're representing? You know, and then of course we want to make sure um, that if um that that all of the kind of um, backgrounds and, and and cultures and ethnicities and races in Tucson are are represented well. Um, yes. so I'm excited about what that looks like for for TYP. And I think over the years, you know, our boards change every couple of years. 
um, we've had uh, different kind of makeups and, and representations. You know, I look at our board now, we had our annual member meeting yesterday, and here are some interesting numbers. 35% uh, of our board um, is, is uh, Latina or Hispanic. Wow. So I think that speaks to, I mean, you said take it with a grain of salt. You That's know, right. Yes. What, what we see uh, may not be, you know, entirely right. what's represented. And, uh, and I, I can share with you our annual report, but when we recruit our board, we're looking at a number of factors as well. We're looking at career stage representation. We're looking at, is this a big company or a small company? We're looking at, is it nonprofit or for-profit? And really trying to have a, a mix there that allows us to be as strong as possible. 70% um, of our board uh, uh, are, are women in leadership, um, which, which I think uh, is, is very powerful as well. 13% um, of our board are part of the uh, uh, LGBTQIA, as I think the full the full set there um, community. Yep. So, um, and so we're trying to focus on the um, on really the broad meaning of are we creating belonging and accessibility yep. in our organization across the board, and and I'm I'm proud of the work that we're doing, um, and. In a year, I can't wait to come back to you and and talk uh, and talk about the results. Yeah, indeed, for sure. Um, so I want to ask you one more question, then I want to spend the rest of our time together really tackling some of your your positions, your uh, stances as you continue your in your role for candidacy. Um, and so, you know, not many people know this unless they know us. You and I were part of the same sort of Southern Arizona, Tucson, forty under forty. Induction yes. class back in uh, back in 2019, just before the pandemic hit, uh, literally just before. Um, the, would the, you one minute the, the before oh, COVID, you know, the before yeah, that's right, PPE before COVID era, yeah, yeah. yeah right, <laughs> PPE, yes, exactly, before COVID era, and for which you won man of the year, it's worth noting. Um, uh, I'd be curious to know. Uh, my question to you, off of that now is. Um, has that given you sort of a sense of responsibility for the city of Tucson simply because you received such an honor? The 40 under 40, but also the man of the year. Has that instilled upon you or have you felt like you had to shoulder uh, a sense of responsibility for the city given that particular award and, and designation? Mm -hmm. Man, that's a good, that's a good question. Um. Because somebody sees you if they're giving you that award. Yeah. At a really high level. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say no. And um, here's why. Number one, I was completely surprised. Uh, oh, you weren't brief were, or nothing like that? No. <laughs> no. No. In fact. Oh, wow. Fact, I thought you the, knew uh, going in. No. No. The behind-the-scenes <laughs> the behind story is that um, the head of the event, uh, came up to my table during the breakfast portion and they actually first pulled my wife aside and said uh -huh. do you want to talk about your husband and kind of introduce him he's about to get this award he has no idea and, sh and she said no that's not my that's not my thing but my dad was there so they pulled my dad aside and of course I'm thinking what's going on but never in a million years did I think it was this <laughs> so he said yes but it was 30 minutes before it happened that anybody in my circle knew anything and wow, they didn't, didn't have time that. to prepare to say anything. 
And so I was completely surprised. Wow. And so I say, <laughs> I say no, but not in an unserious way. I say no, sure. because um, I really feel blessed that the community saw the work that I had done up to that point. But that work has continued and stayed the same. That work, I think, celebrates just the DNA of who I am. And so in that sense, it wasn't a pivot point where I said, okay, now that I have this, I have to go and feel pressure and do these other things. I, I, that, that, you know, working with business and neighborhood and trying to bridge communities and bridge issues, um, I think is what was represented when I won that award. And it was a validation, but it was also keep doing what you're doing. And I didn't feel pressure to continue being who I always was, you know? Yeah, that was huge, man. I, um, it was a, it was a really cool time. And, you know, we had the chance, Visceral Change, my, my company to sponsor the event the next year, which was pretty cool. The alumni fortune in particular. Um, but you know, met a lot of good connections, met a lot of good people. Some folks are still in touch. I've done work with organizations from it as a result also. Um, and it was really cool to, 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 to see who was all there and who won the awards and, and that story you just shared was incredible. I mean, I don't know if I could have prepared for that <laughs> in any way on the back end. Um, all right. So I, um, if I have I have several questions. If and when we get to time, Zach, just shout it out and, and we'll we'll wrap it up or we'll move into a different sure. question and we'll make some stuff happen. I know you're a busy man. I don't want to keep you. But I, I do want the people to, to hear about your position and your candidacy um, and all the good stuff you have planned. But I just want, I want to first attack the elephant in the room. Um, and I think it's important to name it. And I want us to be able to speak through this. And then we can get into some of the, the content because the most important piece is to, 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 to understand or, or uh, figure out why you should be the candidate and for or why you should be the mayor of Tucson and how can people connect with you. Um, and so, you know, I, I believed and I do believe that change really in a, in a way comes through government power, especially when it comes to statutes and policies. And as we talked about earlier at the mayoral level in ways that doesn't impact that you don't feel the same impact at, at other levels of, of, of government agencies and, uh, and, and positions. Um, so a recent report and by recent, I mean a year and some change ago, um, from the mayor's office showed that Tucson, the city of Tucson is 43% Latino, Latinx. So my question to you is as a white man, Zach, what qualifies you to be the mayor of Tucson in terms of being able to connect with people with, with such a high Latinx population? And I wanna qualify this as well by stating what we know is that the current incumbent, uh, Mayor Regina Romero, is the first ever Latina mayor and I think the first Latino mayor since before Arizona was even a state. Uh, and so uh, talk about why sort of as a white man, sort of not necessarily just what qualifies you. I don't mean by, by skill set and experience because you have that for sure. In terms of gaining the trust of the people and being someone that folks can connect with, um, what role does that whiteness play? Um, and if it does play a role, what it, how do you see yourself navigating that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that is, um, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting question. And 
you know, I think this is potentially one of the places where, um, you know, a focus on identity and representation could be a pitfall, could be a, a tripping up in a way, in the sense of, I'm not saying this, but someone could hear that question and yeah. go, well, then if 43% of Tucson is Latino or Hispanic, and about four or five percent are African American, then that means um, that a majority of the city does not look like that. And so Zach is a perfect representation of the city. It's a good counter. <laughs> now again, I'm not saying that. I hear you. I hear you. That's not my heart. But I think right. this is where this is where it gets dicey. That's where right. I think the question needs to be. Are we electing a mayor? Is this person, is this personality someone who is willing to build a big, beautiful table? You know, uh, a big room of people with different perspectives and different life experiences and is willing to say, look, maybe I haven't shared all of those things or maybe I, you know, uh, um, don't share a certain DNA, um, but we are here to work together and to represent all of us. And, and I know that sounds really cheesy, uh, but there's a, um, there's a mentor of mine um, who has been involved in local politics. And when he uh, was elected and then when his replacement was elected, he said, your job is to represent everybody. Mm. You don't get to be a special interest mayor. That's just not what you're elected to do. That's not the job. You are a mayor for everyone. And that means having tables where there's really hard conversations between people who don't look alike and have different lived experiences, but live in the same place. Yeah. Those are really crucial conversations between neighborhoods and businesses, but you represent everybody. You don't get to be a special interest mayor. And that really mm. stuck with me. Sure, um, sure. That... You know, I certainly hope the voters of Tucson will make a decision this upcoming November that is in part around which candidate is best able and has shown ability um, to represent everybody. And if they don't understand a, li a, a lived experience, they don't understand um, how somebody else lives, that they're willing to create the space to learn and to listen and be humble sure. enough to learn about that. and. and and to shape policy for the most good. Um, you know, I think that as mayor, my decision-making will be around one question. Is it good for Tucsonans? Not mm -hmm. party, not political ambition, not personal ambition, um, not, you know, I'm air quoting my people, and I don't mean that racially right. or ethically, but you know, we all come from different backgrounds and different experiences, we don't get to be a special interest leader. Right. And right. that would be my commitment. That would be my commitment to Tucson. Putting the Tucson is first. So my only, my only challenge to that is that yes. And there are special interests right? there are groups who experience things uniquely in ways that other groups do not. And this is a solid segue to my next question for you, actually. Um, you know, 
what one thing I've learned, and this isn't a reflection of you, because I'm going to ask you to answer the question. But one thing I've learned in general, just through my work as a just an international DEI consultant and even a professor of org theory, is that racism is the one topic that people will move away from if you allow them to. It, it's it's a reason why no president has ever really run on it before, um, except one, which is and it's not Lincoln. Lincoln did not run on on race. Um, he took a he made a position that came clearer down the road, and we saw what happened to him. Um, but Trump ran on race. He just did it from the opposite end. And so that's a different constitutional discussion and historical discussion about why that was effective for him. But by and large, generally, folks will not engage in race or discussion around racism if you allow them the, the chance to kind of avoid that. Um, but the fact of the matter is, in Tucson, there are special interest groups such as right, the Black community, who you named uh, pretty accurately around 45 to 5%. Um, Communities like the Dunbar, who have, you know, been fighting against gentrification for decades, and that's a Black-owned space, and, and a lot of folks are trying to get their hands on that. Indigenous communities fighting for recognition for for even longer. Um, so what have you, so my question to you is, what have you seen? And you can take this, this question throughout your journey from 11 and on, or even just as you're on the road in the campaign trail here. Um, what have you seen, if anything, Zach, in terms of structural racism here in Tucson? And if that is how you've identified it and seen it, how do you hope to confront that? Or have you seen something entirely different? Mm -hmm. Right. And I think this is, and I appreciate the opportunity to kind of to, to talk about all this, you know, in, in a span of a few minutes, because there is, there is this tension, I think, in certainly American political life today to either divvy up by identity or to ignore identity altogether. Okay. And what I mean by that is, <clears throat> I think it was even, I didn't hear this directly from him, but it was a, it was a retelling. I think it was even Raul Grijalva. Um, sure. he, he was talking to a reporter, this is probably many decades ago, and said, here's what you have to understand. This is his language, as I as it was retold. White voters are really focused on jobs and education and healthcare. Okay. And he said, on the other hand, Latino and Hispanic voters are focused on jobs, education and healthcare. <laughs> and it made me laugh too. And there's this real sense where when we divvy up issues and people by identity, I think we lose sight of the fact that, and I call it the scorecard, but I think all mm. of Tucsonans really want to get to a place where we are, again, an affordable community, full of opportunity and a good quality of life. And that's focused on good jobs and housing that's affordable, good wages, um, good streets, schools and, and safe neighborhoods. Yes. And and I think when we um, when we don't handle the issue of. Uh, identity and equity well, we get really distracted from kind of that Raul Grohalva-ism, right? And I think he's accurate. I think it's an accurate statement. Um, on, on the other hand, um, I, I've gotten to work in housing uh, in this community for quite a long time. And actually, Menlo Park was the first and only for a time redlined district uh, in Tucson. And by redlining, we mean that banks would simply not process loans mm -hmm. uh, for people of color. 
Uh, and um, that hurt to say just now. Sure. Uh, but that's the neighborhood that I now live in. Yeah. Right. And that, uh, you know, I didn't have anything to do with that. Thank God. That was well before I was even thought of. Um, right. But that impacts the reality of the neighborhood that I live in. And when we talk about how do we build an economy that works for everyone, uh, we know that there are education rates that differ uh, by race in this country. Um, we know that when it comes to housing, uh, that communities of color have often been held back structurally um, by banking and legislation. And yeah. so I, I wrestle with this tension of, of how do we how do we have this conversation well that understands the broad priorities and is broadly representative, but isn't detached from lived realities of diverse communities, uh, of diverse communities on the ground. And I think one of my, one of my uh, philosophical challenges running for mayor of a city is that, is it my job to lead a city that tackles all of those challenges itself or do we provide the best possible platform for really great nonprofits and for-profits and organizations like yours to be effective in saying okay how do we address some of these disparities well and, and yes. i kind of lean toward i kind of lean towards the second one um and i think tucson right now is leaning towards the first one mm mm if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. <clears throat> and, you know, uh, one thing we know from organizational theory is that social behavior and organizational behavior, but social behavior is informed by organizational or social design, if you will. So if, if, if I want you to behave in a particular way, I'm going to craft a set of policies or procedures that will guide that behavior where I want it to go. Um, if, if I don't want in the 1960s and before black people to vote, I'm going to put a poll tax there, for example. So the behavior now is that black folks aren't voting, not because they don't want to, but because there's a design in place that has prohibited that. And I would argue that my only push against against Raul Grijalva's position there, as, as told, right, and to the, to the best of your knowledge from it and, and as, I'm, as I'm interpreting it, is that it's actually devoid of that design concept. I agree with the, with the, with the premise, right? White voters want these three things and then Latino voters and then Black voters, Asian, all want the same thing for sure. The critique, though, is access to that opportunity, right? So the design that's in place for these groups of color to have access to that is not the same design that's in place for the white voters to have access to it as well. And so when, when I think about it from that lens, the question is less about what's important for communities of color as a, and other marginalized groups as it pertains to government and, and, and social amenities, but the you, you, you aptly named redlining as a wonderful example of how systemic designs can get in the way of progress for certain identity groups and the language used earlier, right? The special interest groups and certain, certain, certain interest groups. And I would argue this isn't you, but any effort to not acknowledge that that exists does more harm than good, I would imagine. And the, but the good thing about the as as present, and we'll, we'll close out with this in a couple of questions, if you still have some time with me, is that the as at present the community council and 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 uh, 
the city council and the mayor's uh, group here has a, a chief equity officer for the city. Um, and so that is a place that could really be used to strengthen some of these efforts as we continue to grow there. Um, do you have time for a couple more questions, Zach, or where are we with you? Yeah, perfect. Great. Let's let's do it. All right. Um, so we talked a little bit about this earlier, so feel free to, to fill in some gaps if you'd like or um, take it in a different direction. But you are running as an independent. Um, and I appreciate the independent position. I think it um, is is a space where you can, as you mentioned, it's freeing. You can breathe a little bit and say, I'm not I'm not a Democrat and I'm not a Republican. And I'm also not opposed to to being independent of those concepts and it's going and that gives you a chance to kind of see who the best person is the best candidate is um in fact your your campaign video on on your website uh you state that the city is at a tipping point yes. and requires an in, and requires an independent pragmatic focused voice who is willing to hold our city officials accountable that's that's a lot there and that's 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 important so my two questions and we tackle some of it already so feel free to reiterate or just skip past it question one Tell the world what the importance of an independent platform is uh, and why an independent or why an independent can do the job better than, say, a Democrat or Republican. So what makes this really unique, this the independent piece? And number two, um, I'm hoping maybe you can share what it means to vote independent for those who don't understand it. Some might equate independent to like undecided, for example. So just break down essentially the, the independent title and platform and designation. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. And if you'll allow me, I kind of want to tie this real quick to, you know, our last conversation. Of course. Yes, please. Yeah. And why I think Tucson's at a tipping point. Uh, and, and the basics are that there is a, whether you are interviewing uh, someone who is uh, urban or rural, uh, East Coast or West Coast, uh, whatever their kind of uh, uh, cultural and, and racial and ethnic background is, there's been a lot of research around the country, and I hear it at doors here in Tucson, when you ask somebody, why do you come and stay in a community? Uh, or why do you leave a community? There's always three things that rise to the surface. I call it the scorecard, because I think it defines great community. And that's affordability, opportunity and quality of life. Can you afford the cost of housing, buying or rent on the wages of good paying jobs with career mobility, near good roads, good parks, good schools and safe neighborhoods? Yes. And there's many other things that are desired on that list that Tucson kind of has some really good things going for it. Um, but I believe Tucson's at a tipping point because we are the 33rd largest city in America that has seen a 40% increase in rent in the last five years. Yes, man. <laughs> a 60% increase in the cost of housing, in the cost of buying a home wow. in the last five years. I didn't know that was the number. Wow. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, we're at a tipping point because certainly during COVID, where we saw communities really pivot out of that in ways that built stronger economies. Uh, we were the lagging economy in the state, in, in the region, and we were barely hitting the national average of recovery. And wow. when it comes to business establishment growth, when it comes to employment growth, we continue to lag our regional competitors. And then we've seen, I put a lot of work into this, thinking about this, we've seen a 70% increase in homelessness in the last two years. It's pervasive. That 70% increase has resulted in leaving 75% of our homeless individuals unsheltered in any way. Oh my gosh, and, man. And so I ask for a community that prides itself on progress. 
is that compassionate and is that progress to leave 75% of our homeless unhoused in any way? Yeah. And, and, and I'll, I'll stop with this number so nobody falls asleep. But within that two years, we saw a doubling of those on the streets struggling with mental health and substance abuse. Mm. And so I look at that, and I say, okay, if those three things are the scorecard, if, if, if addressing affordability, opportunity, and quality of life is what we have to do as a community, on those things, Tucson is failing to score well. Mm. And I like to say that the American city, and, and, and I would hope that you'd be able to vouch for this from the Boston experience, I can from the Philadelphia experience in some ways, that the American city is like a Hallmark Christmas movie. Um, <laughs> it, it, once you've seen a few, you know how the story goes. Sure. And sure. cities follow patterns where they either tackle these issues well and go in a good direction, or they fail to address it at scale. And um, we see what happens in certainly our coastal cities on both both coasts, mm. where the challenges outpace the uh, the ability after a while to address them. So that's why I say Tucson's yeah. at, a, at a tipping point. Sure. And what I fear is that the ability. Here's my hope. My hope for Tucson is that if we, if we can address those things, we can raise all boats. If we can make housing more affordable across the spectrum we can create a more inclusive economy um, where more people are seeing better jobs and better wages and then we're making great neighborhoods where people want to live that to me is the foundation and the platform from which we can address the big questions that i think sherard you address specifically in depth on a day-to-day -day level i don't I think, think yeah sorry continue sorry no, no, you go, you go. Sorry. I mean, I don't think Tucson is in a foundational place where we have the strength to address some of these big community issues. And I'll give you a couple examples. Um, one of them is that Tucson uh, worked a lot on a source of income discrimination policy that would basically um, uh, make it easier for individuals with what used to be known as Section 8 vouchers to be able to get housing anywhere in the city. But mm. because we are 14 to 20% underbuilt, meaning that supply is not meeting demand, um, that we have more people coming to Tucson than we are building the housing for, the market allows for the cost of housing to be higher than even what someone right. who has a housing choice voucher can afford. Yes. And so when I look at Tucson, for example, right, I want everybody to be able to access and afford housing uh, where they want to and can live. Right. I think we all agree on that. Sure. But we create a policy that has less applicability because we're not under uh, addressing the underlying uh, causes of what's creating the housing crisis. Right. Right. And, right. and so in that way, we can kind of back our way into a problem and not actually solve it. I want to solve the challenge so that the foundation is strong for more people to be able to access more housing. That's that's an example. You know, when, when I when I talk like to. Yes. Oh, go ahead. Continue. Yeah. The floor's yours. Yeah. When, when I when I talk to certainly businesses on the west side and south side, they're really struggling with the impacts of street homelessness. Yeah. And Tucson will often say, you know, well, that's an eviction and job problem. In part, 
uh, the cost of housing has played a part. In part, um, uh, the the job market has played a part. But again, we're seeing by the data, the city's data, a 2x increase in those struggling with mental health and substance abuse. Mm. And we are putting the burden on our businesses to address that day-to-day challenge. Um, and they're crying out for help and they're not getting it because our yeah. policies and strategies are not also tackling that challenge at scale. Yeah. Mental health and substance abuse. And right. so Tucson is not in a position to have the deep conversations you lead because we're trying to build a yacht when our rowboat is leaking. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I sat down with a bunch of nonprofit leaders who are in the um, in the space of creating more inclusive housing and more inclusive economy and that are meeting the needs of uh, those in our community who need it the most. And they were asking me, Zach, what would you do to solve this? And what would you do to solve this? And what would you do to solve this? And I thought, I'm not sure that a city or a city leader can solve all those problems. Mm. And I'm not sure that we should. I think my job is to create a really strong platform from which you can do your valuable work. Interesting. And and by that, I mean, you know, to to create a more stable housing market, I want to focus on policy and process reform where we are able to get housing happening more quickly, where we are not placing additional costs on people creating more housing. Um, I want to make sure that we're focusing on uh, how we are using our industries of strength like biosciences and space in Tucson to be a springboard for a more inclusive economy. And by inclusive right. economy, I mean uh, workforce development, uh, workforce training, uh, 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 the the really three to one or five to one ratio of jobs that come from advanced industry companies that are calling Tucson home. Yeah. Um, it's really hard for Tucson to thrive um, from just a um, an economy that is driven by small and mid-sized business. We have to have the whole, the whole environment. Yes. Um, and so for all those reasons, I think Tucson's at a tipping point. Yeah. And the reason why some of that work I mentioned doesn't get done is because of politics. Yep. Certainly. We have politicized homelessness. We have politicized homelessness in a way where, um, you know, often if you are, uh, a Democrat, your message around homelessness is it's a housing and jobs issue. And if you bring up any other point, you're one of them. Is, and, yeah. and often my Republican friends will focus on the substance abuse and the drug element and the more criminal element that exists. Mm-hmm. will not say we also have to make sure that we are creating housing that is accessible to more people and that we are providing a more inclusive economy. Sure. As an independent, I get the luxury of saying it's both and. That's right. <laughs> Rest, yes. And it, when it comes to housing, right? Housing is very much often divided between Democratic and Republican interests. As yeah. an independent, uh, I can create a conversation that is both and. And I'm not tied to kind of one interest in the conversation um, or another. So what's interesting, and I'll wrap up with this, is that Tucson is the only charter city or town in Arizona. There's like 95 of them. We're the only one that runs a partisan election. Oh, wow, really? 
there's all these big, broad conversations about how do we make a Senate race independent or nonpartisan? And how do we make structural reform so that we have nonpartisan or open primaries? These are all really important conversations. At the city level, it is more common for it to be a nonpartisan race. Sure. And in Tucson, we have made and kept those conversations um, more partisan. And I happen to- Thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, you know, I think the results speak for themselves. I think mm -hmm. some of our biggest problems come from the fact that we have continued to keep things more partisan driven uh, in, in Tucson. I think it's holding us back to, to, uh, so, so as an independent, I want to say, I'm going to be a pragmatic, locally fo focused uh, candidate. I think that's important. Um, I think we need to turn down the noise from Washington and depoliticize local issues. Um, I, I think that we have politicized uh, the mayor's office in Tucson in a way that has prevented us from building those big broad tables where everyone feels like their voice is heard, a decision has come to, and then results happen. Um, and so we have seen over the last couple of years in Tucson and Pima County, massive drops in registration on a party side. And we've seen probably 13 to 15,000 new voters who are considering themselves independent or party not designated. Mm. Um, and I think that there is a partisan exhaustion right now to a large degree um, happening in this country. And uh, I'm not running in any that. way um, uh, uh, against parties. I think parties are important. I think mm. parties help frame conversation. We need two or more strong parties um, in, in this country. But I talk to a lot of Democrats and Republicans who are willing to consider an independent because they want the work to get done. They want more housing. They want a better economy. They want to tackle homelessness in a compassionate and accountable way. So when you mm -hmm. say, what does it mean to vote for an independent? That's what it looks like. And as if I get my signatures by April 3rd, which is the deadline, I'll be on the general ballot and any Tucson voter in November will have a choice to to vote for an independent whether or not they're registered as that they'll have they'll have that opportunity have choice how's how's that looking by the way before i move to the next question it's looking uh, good good it's looking great good. <laughs> great um and then so there's a sense of there's sort of a ceiling in a way that comes with um and i'm just speaking rhetorically here but of course you're welcome to riff if you'd like but there's sort of a ceiling it seems that comes with being a democrat or being a Republican, or being partisan in general, to one of these particular parties, where if you're if you're one of us, you're one of us. Period. Um, and so, and here's sort of here's the, here's the playbook, here's the rule book. Um, you know, being from Boston, right, the Patriot way. You know, anytime you came to New England and played on the Patriots, and everybody will tell you it was just an entirely different. You check your ego at the door. I don't care if you're Randy Moss. I don't care if you're, you're Chad Johnson. You know, Tom Brady. Didn't matter who you were. You were doing it the Patriots way. Even if maybe you thought you could do something different or had a different a different way of going about it, if you thought outside of that, you were no longer a patriot. And so it's almost like that same ceiling in a way applies to the Democrats and Republicans. I know Tulsi Gabbard years ago, who was a candidate for president, left the Democratic platform, essentially switched Republican, uh, but she she'll identify as independent in a way. Um, but she did so because she has some some thoughts, right? Some different ways of thinking about things, some critiques that just didn't fly well within the, the Democratic Party. So I can see that position on how someone from a distance might see the, an independent. I like how you said, 
as someone who can get the work done, which is why I'm willing to to, to cast my vote there. Um, so es essentially, you can just confirm this for me, or 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 not, or add to what to what might be missing here. But like a couple of themes that pop up from from just our discussion today, and even just your campaign information, seems to have an emphasis on housing, homelessness, job accessibility, and even security. Fair to say that that's pretty much your platform that you're running on, or are there some other elements? And of course, inclusive of other things, right? Some of the nuance, but these four central themes that that you hope to to rectify a little bit. Yep, affordability, opportunity, and quality of life. Affordability, opportunity, and quality of life. Okay, I like that. I like that. Uh, talk a little bit, Zach, about what you're hearing on the ground. So we got a nice little feel for for your big picture and sort of what you're thinking based on your experience and how you've been able to see Tucson over the several years and with leadership. But I also know you, you've wanted to have up to a hundred cafecitos, I believe it was, and, and uh, just conversations with folks. Um, what have those discussions sounded like on the ground? Are, are they in alignment with, with the three pieces, you're, you're, uh, the three elements you're looking for? Um, or are they, are you hearing something different? What do the people want from you? Mm -hmm. The the reason I'm still in the race, because uh, you're right. So I filed as a candidate in July of 2022, and I uh, filed to be able to have these conversations and listen. And you know, from a, uh, I, I've lived with my parents, or I've been hired. I've been doing a lot of work in small, mid-sized business in my life, and they always say you can have a great idea. But if nobody wants the product and they're not willing to pay for it, you don't have a business. <laughs> that's that's not true. <laughs> you're just a good guy with maybe a good idea. And so, you know, I really, like you said, took the time to listen and say, here's what's on my heart. Is this in any way tracking with the community that you see? Yes. And I was really invigorated by in those living rooms, in those kitchens, in those, you know, small businesses that we would meet at, the concerns that I have and the urgency for change that I see is shared by Democrats, Republicans, and independents alike. Mm -hmm. um, that there is this sense on the ground that we're not doing big enough, bold enough, and the right work to really tackle some of our greatest challenges at scale. And you know, I can just leave it as short as that, you know, was hearing that those three things are really important, also important, things like water, you know, um, and many other things that the mayor will have to handle. But the message I want to convey is these are the three things that we absolutely um, have to get right. And um, it's what was interesting from that I hear from both Democrats and Republicans um, is that they have felt over the last four years um, a divisiveness um, from leadership. And again, both Democrats and Republicans wanted a more unifying approach to city government to get the work done, you know. And then when I when I talk to the Democrats, you know, who are really wanting to support Zach for Tucson, right? There's a qualified, longstanding Democrat on the ballot. And so I'll ask, why me? Mm. And they'll say divisiveness. And they'll say, we voted in leadership to get the work done and the work isn't getting done. The cost of housing is going in the wrong direction. Right. The scale of homelessness is going in the wrong direction. Our economy is not keeping pace with the rest of the state. What's going on here? 
Mm. And mm. what I love is that at the local level, national identities and politics really scramble around the kitchen table. I don't know if that sounds cheesy, but I found it to be true. Mm. Um, and um, that has been really validating. And that's the spirit of Tucson that I want to tap into as a candidate. That's right. And say we should be a shelter from the storm here at a citywide level. We should be the place where we can turn down the noise from Washington and get back to work again on the issues that impact us here. Because we have a lot of power that we have not tapped into to tackle our own challenges in our own ways here. And that's been resonating. Certainly, certainly with young people, you know. Well, that, that la it lands well. It lands well. And there's a sort of, right, at least in the work that I do, I'm a big believer in that vulnerability and transparency are at the root of your learning. Yes. And in my book on how to have difficult conversations, back here, I, uh, I nice place the... <laughs> I place the role, I place the role of transparency on the facilitator or the sort of the leader of the discussion, and then the role of vulnerability on right the receiver or the audience, if you will. If I if I'm willing, the degree of my transparency will will speak to the amount of vulnerability you're willing to share, and so long as I'd argue, you it, the mayor, you and this even on this journey are willing to be transparent then I think a sense of permission is then given to the people to be vulnerable. You talked about that kitchen table discussion. Um, that's at a very vulnerable space when you're, you're in your home, you're around people you know and love and it's comfortable. So you can kind of take the mask off a little bit. Uh, in the public eye, we're not, we're not supported in the same way by and large uh, because the system, one would argue, hasn't allowed that to, to be so. So if the leader of that system, at least at the local level, is being so transparent that allows me to be vulnerable, then maybe I make sense of my positionality towards what I want differently in public that I have privately behind the scenes. My Zach, dad, would, my dad was, oh, yeah. my dad would always say, "He who has all the answers is not up to date on the questions." And and, like and I think your current political life makes a whole lot of people feel like they have all the answers. Uh, and as an independent, I get to ask the questions, and yeah, I get to yeah. and I be open to the answers. And this ties back to your question of Zach, how can we be confident that you'll represent the community as a whole? Sure. It comes back to that vulnerability that every day I get up knowing that I don't know what I don't know. And right. in my seat, the expectation is that I have all the answers. And I'm willing to say, I don't know what I don't know. And That's I'm right. going to learn from your experience, whether it's similar or different to mine. And we're going to be free to shape policy and strategy and work together because if what you say makes sense, I'm going to strip away the labels. I'm going to strip away some of that and just say, what makes sense for Tucson? Because I don't know what I don't know. And I'm willing to sure. ask the questions. And I think that humility is really needed in a mayoral seat. Yeah, uh, That's how you get to the best results and the best that's answers. Right. And our politics right. don't allow us to do that. And I hope I hope that if if you are elected by the people that you will continue to create space for these discussions, these dialogues, lean on folks like myself and, and other individuals and organizations who have a level of expertise to kind of help um, sort of steer the conversation, uh, at least from the, from the era of, of, of the field. I have one more question for you, Zach, and we're going to wrap up again. Thank you for, for taking some time out to connect with us today. Um, so uh, 
a, a couple years ago at this point, I was actually asked to apply for that chief equity officer position in the city of Tucson uh, when it was launching. And um, I had a chance as a result to meet with some high profile folks um, working within city government and, and around it uh, as well. And I had, I had some questions that were from the DEI place that, you know, I think could have been answered, excuse me, could have been answered better. Um, but one thing that did pop up was a police officer shared with me the statistics of violent crimes and homicide saying that, so this was a couple of years back. So from 2020 to 2021, that they had essentially doubled. Um, and it was really scary when we talked into to more detail about how and why that was the case and, 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 and where that really stood out most. Um, so one thing that tells us is that is an issue. I don't know what the numbers are now in 2023, but my question to you is, I actually have a two-part question here. So I'll answer this one first, and then you can close out with the next one. Uh, do you have a position on this, the the violent crime, and and uh, you talked about safety a lot in Tucson and the rise of violent crimes. And my second question is just, I'm personally interested, would you have a mind to keep the chief equity officer role and position in play. And the reason why I ask that is because during my interview with them, I asked them, um, what, you know, what does this position look like in the future? And I was told, well, you'll have to, you'll have to sort of demonstrate and prove why this should exist going forward. And my just position is, well, I thought you already did that work if you have the position live. So it makes you question the commitment of such a, of an office and position. So two questions, your, your take on, on on violent crime and some of the challenges that we've seen in that area and the rise of that into the city of Tucson and then your your overall take on the position of a chief equity officer uh serving mm -hmm. alongside you man I really love uh I love the I love this question and you know I took about six or seven days before I said anything publicly about what happened in the Tyree Nichols instance in Memphis Mm -hmm. Because I think these issues are too big and too important just to tweet either a meaningless tweet or a tweet that is politically charged from either way. Um, sure. I think these deserve a lot more time and attention. And what I found really interesting, I actually took some time to deep dive. How did Memphis get to a point where they had the Scorpion unit in the first place? You know, the context being there was, what, four or five officers involved. Right. They were a part of a Scorpion unit that got involved in a traffic stop that obviously ended in a very tragic way. I wanted to figure out the rest of the story. How did we get to that point? And what I found was interesting is that the Scorpion unit that was developed was really the end result of a two or three year process where urban communities in Memphis we're crying out to the mayor and council about the level of crime and drugs and violence in Memphis. Mm. And the result was, okay, we're going to do more hotspot policing that tackles some of those challenges. That's how Scorpion came to be. And it reminded me from my, from my learning. And again, I don't know what I don't know, but so far in my learning, whether we're talking about the response to the cocaine epidemic, I think in the 80s, whether we're talking about the, I'm air quoting for those who are listening and not watching, um, the, the Biden crime bill, uh, that the request for a heightened response to crime 
actually comes from urban communities, uh, comes from communities of color. Um, because communities of color are impacted by under-policing and over-policing first, worst, and most. You know, and I think there's a little bit of a tragedy yep. in, in, in there. And it was the same in Memphis. And so this request to see more community policing, more engagement, a heightened response uh, to crime so often comes from our urban communities. Sure. And and then when there is not proper oversight, not proper training, not proper accountability, um, the results of that are felt worst, first and most by those same uh, urban communities, right. which often right. tend to be communities of color. And sure. so my vision as a, an independent, as a person, as a Tucsonan, is that we stop the pendulum swinging. Um, you know, I'm pretty open that I think Tucson needs to get to probably about 1,200 police officers. Mm. Uh, in my experience as a neighborhood president, uh, I think that the connection to community, the proactive engagement with community, the ability for our officers to not just be reacting uh, but able to be engaged and proactive is really, really important. Um, and I think that we need to be focused on how do we increase the quality of our recruits? How do we increase the training um, that we need to get to that 1200 number? Now, we're at uh, a little under 700 police officers right now in Tucson in the 33rd largest city in America. And uh, I don't think that's a system that is sustainable. So I'm pretty clear and open. I know in a very charged environment in this country around policing, I think we need to actually increase uh, the number of commissioned and non-commissioned officers um, to be able to serve our communities across the city. But we also need to understand that there has to be accountability and oversight and training that is that is continual. And then I'll stop this answer with this. Uh, this is what the American people, I'm again air quoting, uh, have said in, in the aftermath of George Floyd. They mm -hmm. said, we want fully staffed and resourced police departments. We want better accountability and oversight. And we want community investment over the long term that helps to uh, remove some of the underlying reasons that create negative interactions between citizens and police officers, like we poverty, hunger, uh, substance abuse, whatever the case may be. And so mm -hmm. I align with that three-legged stool. And, you know, I think the Tucson Police Department has been one of the most proactive over the last couple of decades um, in, uh, in what I think are good police reforms. And I think we should continue, uh, we should continue down that path. Um, when it comes to, when it comes to the chief equity officer, um, I don't think I know enough yet, Sherard, about what the position intends to do and what the position has done. It seemed like it took a while to get somebody in place. And I I don't know if it's clear what the mission, the vision, the agenda. I, I, I'm, I'm laughing because I wonder how telling that is. You know what I mean? Um, it's been in place for, I mean, I went through the process in January 2020, uh, January 2022, like the end, like end of 2021, top of 2022. So at least a year, I'd argue someone's been there uh, and someone who's steeped into the work in this way and you haven't had an idea of what that's looking like 
I wonder how telling that is for the position and what it's been able to do. I don't mean to cut you off, but it just it just had me thinking about that. Please continue. Yeah, yeah, I know, and I think I, I think I'm almost done with that answer. I, I I I I am really averse to symbolic gestures that don't produce results, mm-hmm. and I think we have a lot of that happening in Tucson right now on a policy level. So my goal will be to get in and and dig into these things and ask why what is the purpose is it working or does it just outwardly look like it's helpful and i think the data the data has to drive um the data has to drive the answer um to that question and again uh, i don't think we can be an equitable city when rent has gone up 40 percent uh when homelessness has gone up 70 percent and we don't have an economy that works for everyone that has to be the focus. And I will work with any person, any position that drives towards that focus. If it's not substantially driving towards results, I think we have to be willing to prune. I, I know I said that was my last question, but my last question is, do you, do you see such a position as important at all in, in uh, sort of in city government alongside, alongside the mayor's position? I, in the sense that when we, I think equity has become a really charged word. I, when I look at the word equity, I think about um, um, uh, access mm-hmm. to services and access to things. I think about opportunity yeah. uh, and I think about, are we building the most diverse and representative tables to tackle our, our biggest challenges? Um, and, uh, if that's the definition, I think that position potentially could be valuable. All right, Zach, again, thank you so much for connecting. Last question as always is the informal question, not, not another formal question, but, uh, uh, where can folks reach you if they haven't had a chance to, um, uh, did we miss anything that would be valuable for you to share as we sort of close the door on our interview today? Um, and then, uh, websites, how can people contribute, uh, hashtags, ads, all that good stuff. For sure. You can find me on social media, uh, at Zach Yenser on Facebook. I have a, uh, political personality page, um, on Twitter. I'm at Zach Yenser, uh, Zach for Tucson, F-O-R, the word for Tucson.com is where you can go and find out, uh, more about, kind of our positions and platforms and goals and policies. Um, and I would just say that I think Tucson's at a tipping point. Uh, we have an urgent moment at hand to tackle some of the big challenges that Sherard, you and I, uh, you and I talked about. And I yeah. think we need common sense uh, change and how we're addressing those issues. We need it urgently. And I think it's going to take a fresh independent voice um, to take us into the future. And, um, uh, I don't think that we can continue where, how we're going and get to a great city where the most people have the most opportunity and access to a good quality of life. Um, and so that's my call to action. I think it's an urgent moment and Sherard, you know, I'm finding that there's a huge education curve in letting mm-hmm. people know that there's an election coming up in November, mm-hmm. 2023 that it matters a great deal because of how you started this interview. Um, and so I really appreciate 
you creating this opportunity to inform more people about what's coming up uh, because a lot of people don't know. And this is so important to your daily life, uh, these local elections. So I appreciate it. Of course, man. Thank you for taking a second out uh, of your day and and to engage us. Folks, my friends, that will wrap up this discussion and this episode of The Chopping Block. 2023 mayoral candidate, independent, Zach Yenser, Dr. Sherrod Robbins. You're on The Chopping Block at thisrealchange.org.